All right, we're live. What's going on, guys? Remember, Tao, welcome back to the channel. We are honored to have Arctic Mind back onto the channel. Uh, we've interviewed him before here on the channel, and wow, did we have a great conversation last time? You guys love that conversation. We talked a lot about the fundamentals uh, behind Monero, like the scalability, uh, which Arctic Mind is a specialist at, and tail emission, dynamic block size, and so many great things that have to do with the fundamentals around Monero. And we're going to talk more about developments today with the lovely Arctic Mine. And Arctic Mine, if you don't know who he is, is a core developer behind Monero. Uh, he's been part of the crew for quite a long time. Uh, he is a designer in regards to scalability for Monero. That's one of the things he specializes in. And he's part of the Monero Policy Working Group. So he works on a lot of fronts, wears a lot of hats. Arctic Mine, welcome back. Thank you. So... You've been working with the Monero Policy Working Group lately on some developments, I believe, right? Yes. Uh, the biggest one was a fairly comprehensive response to the European Commission um, anti-money laundering policy. And that involves like four different responses. Uh, and this process has taken quite a while. There's a lot of documentation involved. Uh, so we actually were involved in drafting responses uh, to that. Um, and there was a very interesting uh, points. I mean, one of the more interesting ones lately was the fact that we identified the fact that it didn't cost anything, any of this properly. This is in the previous response to the latest ones that we did. Uh, there was quite a concern around the fact that they did not do a cost, proper cost analysis, even though the law requires that. A proper cost analysis of the actual laws being implemented? The cost to all of the different players, citizens, small businesses, uh, um, businesses in the sector like um, BASPs or essentially exchanges, etc., yeah. of these regulations and what the actual implications were. And that was not the problem. So that was one of the things we identified. The other issue and a theme that I think is very important for, for us has been this whole issue around blockchain, blockchain surveillance, which is this idea that you can do surveillance on a blockchain like Bitcoin in order to identify illicit activity on the Bitcoin blockchain. Uh, and of course, the reason for that is it's intimately related to the, all these delistings issues that we have with Monero, because essentially Monero makes it blatantly obvious you can't do this. The argument, and a very strong one in my view, is that blockchain surveillance simply does not work on Bitcoin also. Otherwise known as chain analysis. That's the kind of the term they prefer. I prefer the term, uh, term blockchain surveillance because it's more than just doing analytics on the chain. It's how you interpret that information, which right. is a real weakness of it. So we, 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 that's been a major thrust in our participation, not just with the European Commission, but also with the Financial Action Task Group back in, the, uh, in um, uh, uh, late spring, early summer of this year. And also uh, a previous, uh, uh, about a year ago, with was FinCEN. And also there was another uh, presentation to the European Commission. I see. So FATF, just for people who don't know what that is, that is the international uh, regulatory body that sets recommendations for 130 or so jurisdictions and countries as to how they should establish AML and KYC in their countries for currencies and for banking and things like this. 
Yeah, I mean, basically, it's called Financial Action Tax Force, as the English, based out of Paris. Uh, and it is an international advisory group, essentially, that, that advises, issues guidance to the uh, national regulators. And their focus is anti-money laundering and countering, uh, and counter-tariff, countering tariffs and fi- finance. So they are, so you can think of it in some ways as the regulator's regulator. Um, and one of the interesting things about the FATF is they issued a guidance uh, fairly recently, towards the end of October, if I'm correct. And it talked about a lot of crypto assets in it. And one of the things that it did is it identified and linked back, but identify some very serious flaws with blockchain surveillance or chain analysis. And essentially what it is, is that they went out and they were trying to get a measure on how much illicit activity is going on, for example, in the Bitcoin blockchain. So in the beginning of the year, they went out uh, and they went to seven blockchain surveillance companies. And they asked them to look at uh, uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Tether. And then and produce results as to illicit activity and the percentage of PDP transactions and so on. And the average results, and this is the key point to understand, are all over the place. In fact, I'm quoting from memory here, but uh, for example, for illicit activity, they had, uh, I think it was 2019, a range of everything from 0.04% all the way to 12.7% or something like that. So they're completely all over the place. Now, these are the averages not individual transactions. So if you're supposedly trying to identify illicit transactions on a blockchain and your averages are that far off, how far out are your individual transactions going to be? Well, one of my questions is, of course, how do they determine these are legal transactions? I mean, these haven't been processed in a court of law, presumably. Uh, These are all assumption-based, isn't it? Completely. Uh, See, there's two elements to this. I mean, the first part of it is is that you go in there and you actually do these correlations. So you look at the, the blockchain. You say, well, here is an address, for example, that is, as we believe, is associated with, say, um, a darknet market or something like that, or drug, selling drugs. Mm. And then they say, well, they look at how many hops away it is, the one that they want to measure. And they, give, and they make an arbitrary assessment. This, they will say, one will say it's two hops, one will say it's one hop, one will say it's ten hops. And then they taint the other address. So, and, the, and then all of this is done in a completely closed book environment. There's no accountability whatsoever. There's no knowledge, particularly from the perspective of the people who are accused. So you essentially have a black box, and they're basically taking a wild guess. And what I suspect the FATF data is, is that it's basically picking the various biases in this process. So the statistical analysis, that is well-known open source some of the basis for that is actually one note. But the specifics of how you interpret it, they, they, have no, they have no clue. They're simply making an assumption that because, from going from illicit activity to this correlation is where the big fail is. Just totally arbitrary. Interesting. So there are two ways that somebody could interpret what you're saying, especially if they're in Bitcoin. They could say, well, it sounds like they can't totally nail down what it is I'm doing with my Bitcoin. They can't totally determine that I'm using it for illegal activity. But the fact that they can come up with the presumption as it is, if you're thinking in another way, means that you could be falsely accused, perhaps. So maybe they can't totally determine you're using it illegally, but maybe they could suspect that. 
And then you could have your big Bitcoin seized or maybe it could be tainted or some risk profile could be raised on you and your Bitcoins that you're doing. So what are your thoughts on that? Okay, a lot worse than that. It's actually a lot worse than what you mentioned. In oh, our one of in our one of our presentations to the European Commission, we actually came up with a scenario, and it's a very simple scenario. But essentially, you have a couple. They're from Europe, and they're driving an RB on a Canadian highway. They get into trouble, and they, and they get and they have to actually call a tow company. They pay the tow company with Bitcoin. And then they continue on, you know, they get back on the road and they continue on. Now, unbeknownst to them, that tow company then is a subject of a extortion attempt by a criminal. And what the criminal does in our scenario is they, they tell them, give us your private key. Not transfer the Bitcoins, give us your private key for that transaction. Hmm. So they take the private key of the wallet. Uh, mm -hmm. Okay, there's nothing happening on the blockchain at all that you can measure then they cross the border into the states so this 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 criminal then sells it to a, to a terrorist the terrorist they don't again do a transaction on the blockchain but what it does is they sell the private key again the terrorist goes in and buys fertilizer from a supplier in the states to make a bomb base with that bitcoin Oh my goodness. Now, now you get a whole picture. This is a little bit. Now, the chain, the blockchain surveillance company, they look at the Bitcoin. And so, oh, this is that clean. It came out from this um, uh, exchange and it's just two hops away. So, this is totally fine. Mm -hmm. And these are legitimate people that know they can't see all of this kind of thing. When the bomb goes up and all this unravels, these guys then get accused of a serious act of terrorism. Wow. Yeah, that's not good. That's not that's good not at good. all. <laughs> and that's how dangerous this is. Because the problem is, what they cannot surveil is what happened off-chain. They cannot mm -hmm. surveil the extortion attempt on the tow company. Right. And they cannot surveil the second trade that happened off-chain between the criminal and the terrorist. Mm -hmm. So you have both money laundering and terrorism financing in the, in the equation. And a completely innocent couple that gets blamed for the whole thing. Yeah. So let me ask you this, because that makes it sound like blockchain analytics companies can only do so much and they want to advertise that they do more than they actually can. Absolutely. And so if that's the case and these blockchain analytics companies seem to be establishing relationships with regulators, do you think that there's going to be a huge industry which props up uh, between regulators and blockchain analytics companies and they... Yeah somehow establish a regulatory framework that makes it so only trackable and traceable currencies are allowed on exchanges, sort of like what we saw in the UK with Kraken. I feel like there's a development going on with that. Okay, if you, if, if you dig into that case, I mean, that's exactly what they're doing. They're pushing for their solution as an primarily, and some of the reason as an alternative to travel. And it's precisely what happened in the UK, where they got into a, a mid sort of a industry group that was advisory to the um, uh, Financial Control Authority, the FCA. And they put in a set of rules that effectively banned uh, coins like Monero. Mm -hmm. 
And this is where that, that's where the whole cracking in the UK uh, came. It's exactly the same thing that has happened that happened in South Korea. It is exactly the same thing that happened in Australia. And I suspect it heavily influenced after the South Korean situation, the Japanese response. This has been going on for quite a while. This has been going on at least from 2018-2019. Largely behind the scenes. The claims that these people make, I mean, there's a a posting from um, one of the head, uh, I think it's the top uh, investigative officer for Chanalysis. Now, she used to be, till very recently, from what I gather, uh, a top cybercrime um, police officer or, or, or uh, official in the United Kingdom. So you definitely see the migration between the two. In fact, one could legitimately argue there may be a conflict of interest in this case. There is a link, uh, and I, I found one link, it's a Dutch company, kind of obscure thing where she makes a very interesting claim. So one of the claims that, that is made is we can basically tell it with certainty. The implication of certainty is very much that. So that's the message they're sending the, the regulators. Now, the, 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 con- the problem here is, is that a lot of members of the Bitcoin community also support this, at least the exchanges. Because what they want to do is they want to give the regulators something different than travel rule, because travel rule in itself is quite a problem if you want to migrate transactions from on-chain to essentially centralized ledgers. So it kind of dovetails back what I'm doing on scaling. Because basically what the problem is, if you look at Bitcoin, Bitcoin does not have the capacity on-chain. So how do you justify the price that you see in Bitcoin? Well, because it's basically migrated off the Bitcoin blockchain onto centralized ledgers. Hmm. Uh, and again, uh, a little digging. Um, there was a um, request for comments, I think, uh, came in from uh, the Community Futures uh, Trading Commission in the United States with respect to futures and derivatives on cryptocurrency. And Coinbase, in their response, this is in 2018, they said, that their volume of activity alone would swamp the Bitcoin blockchain. It wouldn't be handleable, it couldn't handle on the Bitcoin blockchain if the Community Futures Trading Commission required settlement on chain, or at least the possibility of settlement on chain. Mm. Now, if you're trading futures and derivatives, this is very important because it avoids creating essentially, you want to be able to settle on chain, you want to be able to hold the shorts accountable. And the only way to do that is to take delivery of the actual physical asset. In the case of Bitcoin or Monero for that matter, you've got to be able to take that Monero or that Bitcoin off the exchange onto your own private wallet and settle the contract that way. Right. And we see that in silver too. There's not much physical delivery of the silver. And so most of the trading just takes place on these paper derivatives markets that are totally disconnected from the physical market or in crypto terms, the on-chain market that's correct chain activity but the person that enters into those contracts has a right to do that right mm-hmm. and that's the key point that the community futures trading commission wanted and a very famous case of course but he leveraged it he didn't he, that's why he couldn't get away with it was uh, the hunt brothers in the 1980s that literally started taking delivery as a way of squeezing a short position to the wall in yeah. fact that's a technique that is very effective on any cryptocurrency. If you suspect shorting and you're trading and you're a, a, an investor, uh, you basically take deliveries and pack and wait. 
Take your crypto so, off the exchanges, basically. Is what you're basically, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, or whatever. I mean, on this exchange, I mean, I, I made a lot of money doing that in 2012 with Bitcoin. I mean, essentially, it was this massive short position called, called Brighter at 40. It was, it was close to you know, half a million Bitcoins. Half a million Bitcoins. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's a lot of fun. Okay. Half a million Bitcoins, but price range between $2 and about $10, $15. He went bust when it hit about 15 Mm. Now, those who make money on the process, very simple, you just buy your Bitcoins on an exchange, pull them on your, on, your, on, your, on your wallet, sit on them and wait for the thing to blow up. Mm. <laughs> Ooh, that must have hurt that guy. Oof, that must have hurt. Uh, he ended up in jail uh, because it was basically what he was doing. Is he was borrowing the Bitcoins at 7% a week. Oh, oh, goodness. Which... If you looked at the bear market from 2011, from $32 to $2, there's actually an appropriate rate of interest, given that it was falling for about 8% a week. Mm -hmm. That's astonishing. So I have to ask you, since you have some experience with this, there's some speculation going on in the crypto, or specifically the Monero community right now, that there are a lot of shorts against Monero. And there seems to be some activity that is suppressing it, whether it's purposeful or not, whether it's... Uh, intentional or not what are your thoughts on all of that because we have seen the price be a little bit lackluster um and some people speculate that there is some kind of paper monero scheme going on on the exchanges we we don't have their view key we can't see how much monero they have people are leaving it on the exchanges maybe it's being uh shorted out multiple times so what are your thoughts on all of this oh it could be quite possible i mean in fact i would not be surprised if uh there is a portfolio shorting of a lot of altcoins uh, and Monero being one of them. Uh, Monero lends itself more to this because you can't do, you can't trace it on the exchange. But yeah, we wouldn't be surprised at all. And they're basically relying on being able to cover the shorts if they get called in. Mm. Now, I think it's interesting because if you look at what happened with Dogecoin last year, when it shot up, it shot up really violently. Way out of proportion to, to anything that will happen. And I think what happened there is there was a massive short squeeze. But what's interesting is if there was a portfolio shorting of altcoins, it had a ripple effect, including Monero and a whole bunch of other coins. So, so they had to give up their short positions in order to meet the, the margin costs on Dogecoin. I think it's quite possible that this could transpire in Monero. Um, I don't think it's going to bring down a major exchange because they're hating it on a whole bunch of other things. So they're not just shorting Monero, they're probably shorting Bitcoin Cash and and they're shorting Litecoin and they're shorting... I mean, it's essentially the uh, Tom Bay's short. I mean, you, sh you go along Bitcoin, you short all the altcoins. Hmm. And if one of them booms, you hedge it on the other ones. Interesting. That would make sense to me from the perspective of an exchange. And yeah, Monero's been in a bear market with respect to Bitcoin uh, from, for the last four years. Mm. Yep. It's at the end of the bear market. I, I get a feeling it's kind of like a tired bear market. It's the most dangerous time to be doing something like that. So, yeah, there's a very good possibility that this could lead to a violent short squeeze in Monero. Well, we would uh, hope something like that happened anyway. Should we write a Wall Street Bets article? Maybe we should reach out to those guys. But um, when you look at Datamish, for example, which is just one website that compiles data from, I think, Bitfinex on the mm -hmm. longs and shorts uh, for respective cryptocurrencies, the shorts far outweigh number uh, the longs. 
for Monero. And you don't see that yes. for any other crypto that they have listed on there. So it looks incredibly suspect to me. I don't understand why somebody would want to do this, especially when transaction volumes are going up and all the developments going on with Monero and all, the macro case growing stronger every day. I mean, people are wanting privacy more and more, especially in this new world that we're moving into. I can't imagine for the life of me why somebody would want to actually short this and think that there's a fundamental case for that other than maybe delistings, other than for uh, some other reasons that I'm not aware of. They're not trading fundamentals. They're trading a technical short-term. The charts, it's the exactly the same mistake that Pirate at 40 made in 2011 with Bitcoin. At the bottom of the market, close to $2, and it crashed all the way from 32 he set up his first Pirate Savings and Trust, and he offered 7% a week on Bitcoin. Based on the historical trend up to that point, this actually made sense. The problem is, the minute the price started to go up, it became a Ponzi scheme, effectively. And he, and he went busted, I think, at about $15 in, the, in, in, in an August. And he was actually thrown in jail uh, for running a Ponzi scheme. So if you have a trending bear market, and if you look just at Bitcoin versus Monero versus Bitcoin, that has been a pretty, and, and you can see it flatten out then yes, you could see something, a very violent move. So if this thing calls, they all scramble back to get into Monero to cover their shorts, then you see a violent upside move in the market. And that's exactly what happened with Dogecoin. Dogecoin was to be shorted to death. It's obvious. Mm. Because if you look at the trend, you know, historically, this strategy is not a bad strategy. You go along Bitcoin, you go short the odds. And... Yeah, I mean, Monero's had its own bear market, but this is where it gets really interesting. If that breaks, it is. They're not trading fundamentals. They're trading the technical short term. I mean, I can't even share. I don't mind sharing this one publicly. I shared it in Bitcoin Talk in 2000, uh, end of 2014 or 2015. I did a trade where I bought Monero at about, in terms of Bitcoin, roughly 25% of the current value. 0.0011. And there was somebody on Bitcoin Talk who said that he sold at that price and was planning to buy back at 0.0008. Mm. The market bottomed out at 0.0009. <laughs> now, yeah. I overpaid. It's not an I overpaid because I paid 0.0011 and it would drop down from 0.0009. Sounds like a lot of people set a limit. <laughs> or a but the one that went below, you didn't get in. The problem there is that you have a fundamental buy. I was buying fundamental. I wasn't interested in trading. I was just interested in acquiring. In fact, to this day, I still have some of that Monero. And I took it off the market. I basically put it in my own wallet. Mm. That's how the bottom phase. At the bottom of a bear market, you're going to see bear pig behavior and this is what the post was in in uh, you're gonna see piggish behavior and pigs are you know they're, they're basically if if you're a, the classic example is buy high hoping to sell higher but you also get the bear side of this sell low hoping to buy lower mm -hmm. yep so you have the both pig and the bear pig mm -hmm. the bear pig the bear pigs are getting piggy right now they're getting really pig and just messes it all and up. They, 
<laughs> and they're just feeding and feeding, and eventually it will it will break. I think it's a real danger. What happened in Dogecoin uh, could happen in Monero. I, I, I would not be surprised if it does. But again, th there's no prediction. It's just they don't know when it's going to happen. But when you have that protracted bear market going all the way back from just basically close to four years now mm. between Bitcoin and Monero, you've got to really think. Because essentially, what's causing the rise in Monero is it's falling with it's, it's been this bear market with Bitcoin, but you see the rise against USD because of the rise of Bitcoin. Right, and you know what's wild is that it's more than technicals for Dogecoin because there's been a lot of adoption too. Like you can buy tickets for basketball games. There seems to be more ATMs that make it so that you can get cash from your Dogecoin than from Monero. Actually, so they have some real. Uh, actually, the trends are very interesting. Um, Dogecoin, I think, is below Monero right now in uh, transactions per day. Oh, for transactions per day, I'd say so. I'd yes, say so so that is already, but it hasn't. This is a fairly recent event. Same thing happened with Dash, and this Dash was quite violent, dropped quite a bit. So Monero has been steadily going up. Dogecoin is mostly being flat. Dash has taken a drop. Ccash is going to slightly down. The only one that's gone up. In transactions per day systematically i would say it's like going other than monero hmm. uh bitcoin cash is all over the place it's very hard to make sense of the bitcoin cash data why it varies so much um it's hard to get bitcoin, excited about bitcoin cash in my opinion bitcoin has been going down in transactions per day on chain but what's happening there this is where fees and bitcoin are quite low right now people don't realize this bitcoin transactions have been going down on chain you go to bed info, bed info charts, and you can look at all the. I don't look at that. I, I like to look at like a whole historical chart, like five, six, seven years, 10 years, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That's what really tells you what's going on. And you look at the trends. And uh, so that's what's happening. So there's definitely a shift into in the retail market to Monero. This is the, and it's not the dot net markets alone. Uh, and the reason you can tell. It's because it's a, these peaking happen in, ahead of the Christmas season. Now, if you look at Visa, it peaks on the 22nd, 23rd because of in-person transactions. You can kind of discern that Monero peaks a lot sooner because primarily it's being used online, not in person. Yeah. But there's definitely a retail component going on that is growing. A lot of people getting naughty gifts for their family, dude. <laughs> yeah, but they're not going to buy them. They're not going to buy them in the last minute. And in the case, because they're not buying it, and they're going to buy them, have them shipped. So that's why the peak happens earlier. This, of course, is a, it's a critical issue in the whole uh, scaling design because you had to design the scaling system for essentially Visa's dynamics, which is publicly known, where they go, it's like a 50, well, 20 fold increase at the end of the year. Really? The intersections. Yeah, yeah. Bisa, Bisa, they, they may be doing something like about 4,000 transactions mm. or 3,000 transactions a, uh, a day. Uh, uh, sorry, a second. 3,000 transactions a second. When they peak, they're designed to peak about 50,000 transactions a second or 60,000. And this is because of that December 23rd, that peak. They have to have a network that is basically 20 times the size capacity of the average simply to deal with that seasonal peak in December. Wow. Otherwise, the, otherwise, if people couldn't use their credit cards in, in to, to buy less money gifts, they'd lose the business. Yeah, Santa and that's coming. Yeah, exactly. It's it's uh, it's and this is the, exactly the figures that I had to use when I recommended all the changes for Monero. 
Because mm -hmm. I modeled it after BSAS transaction models. Okay, you have a 50-fold increase in transactions. Allow and build in the, in the long-term medium. Why are we doing that? Well, the reason is you're going to have this sharp increase or potential sharp increase in December to accommodate. And it doesn't matter what the basis is. You're still going to get the sharp increase. Mm. That's because smart. percentage, and that's is why uh, when when we came up, we came up with the so when we designed the long term media, I said, look, you know, we're gonna need to have the ability to do this fast ramp up because this is what's happened to Visa. And other blockchains just freeze when that happens. Uh, other blockchains simply capacity. don't have the capacity. To put it bluntly, if you had if you had Bitcoin transaction numbers, current transaction numbers. And you had a retail search such as Visa has has on Bitcoin Cash will seize up. So much for big blockers. Mm. Because all you have to do, I mean, Bitcoin Cash doesn't have SegWit, so it's basically 16 times the, the, the capacity of Bitcoin. 32 mm. is our maximum block size. It's hard-coded. Yeah. So 16 times, because you're not getting the effective doubling of the block size in Bitcoin with SegWit. They're not counting the, the the transactions. But still, do we know sixteen times is enough? I mean, no, it's Monero, not. We know it's Monero not. Still, for all because it's, no, it's, it's not no. box size. It's not because Visa cannot handle sixteen times. Their capacity is more than sixteen times their, their ongoing. Their ongoing. Uh, their search. Their peak capacity is more than sixteen times the the their average their median capacity. Mm. Right. And so so Visa knows it doesn't work. So they're not too worried about it. Uh, well, no, they basically what they what Visa did is they, is they have to they have to build the network big enough so it can handle it. Mm, right. That's how they dealt with it. Right, and because Monero has dynamic block size, uh, these spikes can be easily accounted for. Yes, but this is why the long term median. This is what I'm saying because the long term median wouldn't respond fast enough. Mm. It's 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 a little over two and a half months. So this is why the 50-time cap on the short-term medium vis be the long-term medium is there. That's what allows Monero to respond. Because the short-term medium can respond in the short-term to this, but the long-term medium cannot. So that's why you have that 50x in the code. That's where it comes from. Okay. That is awesome. Very smart planning, Arctic Mind. And that's what I love about the Monero Bros is that you guys plan uh, for many years ahead. Like you see so many... Uh, potential hiccups that could happen based on different mm -hmm. events. I mean, I didn't even think about the Christmas ramp up. I mean, you guys are thinking about everything. So now, Corey came up with a very interesting uh, two years ago with this very interesting problem. What happens if there's a sudden drop in transaction activity from a high? Hmm. And his modeling, and it's just before the start of COVID, uh, I'm sorry, COVID. So he came up, and one of the models actually was a, was a limited nuclear war between India and Pakistan. Well, that was implied, but anyway. <laughs> uh, I'm serious. I am perfectly serious. If you actually read, if you actually read the original thing, and then COVID comes along, hmm. and COVID did it basically that it caused a sudden drop. And what he said, and quite correctly, is that fees were skyrocketed in the center. Hmm. And this is the whole changes that have now been are going to be implemented in the upcoming hard fork. So you have to stabilize it. And this is why what we have to do on the flip side is the long-term media not only stabilizes on the upside, we have to stabilize on the, on the downside. And the solution we came up with was to have 
the minimum, the long-term medium become the benefit free zone. The what? The, like right now, the way Monero works is if you go below 300,000 bytes, oh. you don't go into, you don't have a penalty to increase. So right now, we don't have any penalty. The penalty is not triggered because we're under 300,000 bytes. Okay. Okay. So basically, this is how it works. So if you're below 300,000 bytes, there's no penalty to increase the block size. The penalty kicks in only over 300,000 bytes. The gotcha. changes we made, the key change is we make the long-term median the penalty free zone. Okay. So what happens is, let's say you're at uh, a million, uh, let's say you're at uh, um, a million bytes. Mm. Okay. That's your long-term median. If you drop below the million bytes, you, you, you're kind of like in the 300,000 bytes today. Because that's already been better by the long-term medium. So the long-term medium becomes the penalty free zone. That's the key change. And that uh, deals, deals with this sudden surge of fees. Because what are those? What would happen? It's the fees could skyrocket. And COVID is a perfect model for that. Because what happened in COVID, we didn't have a big impact on the Monero network initially, although I suspect COVID may have an impact on our rising transaction in retail, by the way. But we didn't have a big impact because we were so small. But basically what happened is the first thing is you got a sudden drop in, in, in economic activity. Nobody's buying anything, everybody's sitting home and panning whatever. And then all of a sudden you got a change to you got a move a, a, a repositioning. So there's less cash, there's less in-person transactions, and there's a lot more online. Mm. And so essentially you have the drop, which is exactly what Coy was was postulating in, in his uh, analysis, which by the way was bang on. And then you get the ramp up afterwards. So it was interesting because it just came out and COVID came right. It was in February of 2019. So it's February of 2020. And it was basically COVID is exactly the model that would have done this, which is that, really interesting. That's really interesting. So you're talking about implementing a kind of uh, algorithmic change where a phase shift kicks in if the dynamics change in a radical enough way to where the previous set of dynamics no longer work well. Well, what, no, what you're trying really to do is you're trying to provide a dampening effect on the on the short-term medium. Yeah. The original implication uh, application of the long-term medium was to dampen it on the upside to, to deal with certain spam attacks. And you do the same thing on the downside. So you have a dampening effect. Mm. That's essentially what the short-term what we're doing here. And okay. that prevents a violent change of view. So, so you take the, you don't have the violent fluctuations. You you have a, a dampening impact. So you don't suddenly cause fees to skyrocket. And in fact, even on Christmas Day, you could you could argue that you see a sharp increase in fees simply because of drop in transaction activity. Okay. Uh, uh, if you're just using the short term medium. So, so the way the whole fee structure is designed is to dampen all that. So it's designed to, to handle the long term growth. But also put a damper on a lot of the short-term fluctuations. That's essentially the concept. Right. And we're probably heading into more volatility, uh, or at least we will experience more volatility. So this is a good update uh, for sure. So you were talking a little bit ago about how Bitcoin on-chain uh, seems to have fewer transactions. Mm -hmm. um, maybe more of those transactions are going to the Lightning Network also. Uh, 
You don't think so? No, absolutely not. Well, it's okay. Yeah, all right. It's going into it's going into centralized ledgers. That's so what you're I'm talking about. You're talking about exchanges. You're talking about trust, exchanges. things like this. Okay. I'm talking about exchanges basically acting as banks with Bitcoin. Okay. What or, are the risks with that? There are a lot of no, risks with that, aren't there? This is this is comes back. You sort of pivot back again to the whole compliance issue. Uh, or you have what I would consider be a a, 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 a a lightning channel, which could be a payment channel, but it's basically to a payment processor, and then you put into money with a payment processor and lightning, and then they pay a whole bunch of different people. Mm. So the same concept, uh, you could do it like. But lightning is not does not have the liquidity. It's primarily centralized ledgers. So people are using uh, big exchanges, notably Coinbase. But you know, Coinbase's business model is very much along this. And they're both the, 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 the wallet provider and the payment process. So they're just moving stuff around on their ledgers. Well, can we anticipate that to be uh, the trend going into the future? Because I think I read an article a number of months ago where the European Union wanted to ban anonymous wallets, which would presume that they wanted people to keep their coins on the exchange. Uh, because if you Please. take your coins off the off the exchange, then you'd probably have to file paperwork where you're taking your coins, blah blah blah. So people are probably going to assume, well, they know where I'm taking it anyway, or I'm going to they're limited, etc. So I'm just going to keep it on the exchange. So that's probably the trend going into the future, right? Well, basically, it's the war on cash. I mean, what they did in the European Union is they're going to ban cash transactions. One of the the thing over ten thousand euros. They're going to ban them. Yes, not just not like in the United States where you have to file paperwork. They're actually going to ban them. Oh. That was the proposal in the AML proposal. That's in the AML proposal legislation. That's one of the things we identified as a major problem. That's huge. Wow. They're basically saying you cannot do, uh, uh, like in some countries, you cannot pay cash for over 10,000 euros for one transaction. So essentially, if you do the same thing on a cryptocurrency, you'll be doing the same thing. Well, is cryptocurrency considered cash over there or property? Well, this is the problem, is that they don't want to consider it cash. In the United States, the law approach that has been taken, which I think is probably the most sensible I've seen in a lot of places, to be honest, both by Congress and by FinCEN, has been, okay, we're going to treat this from an AML uh, CFT point of view the same as cash. Hmm. And use the same regulations, since travel rule, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. But here's the, the difference. Because... You don't have a payment processor at the other end. When you pay uh, with Bitcoin, you have to know the identity of the payer. In a debit transaction, the bank knows that. But in a, in a Bitcoin transaction, if you're doing this, you have to get the, the person to tell them who they're paying to. And this is why they had this big fight with travel rule in the Bitcoin community, because they throw some monkey wrench into this model of having to uh, identify who you're paying to. And they said, well, why don't you just withdraw it and do it on chain? For small transactions, the same thing. You go to a bank and you can go two things. You can you can use a debit card or you can withdraw cash and pay the merchant. Right. Mm. Okay. The problem is if Bitcoin cannot handle the transaction volume of withdraw cash and pay the network, your only option is the debit card. It's actually worse than cash. Because if you're dealing with a bank, you have the choice of saying, okay, I'm going to pay cash for my for my supper today. Like, like for example, this just before this interview, I went and had breakfast at... Uh, at a coffee shop, I pay cash for that. Yep. That's a choice that I make. I could have just as well used a debit card. 
Mm-hmm. I chose to pay cash. So I chose to go to the bank and withdraw cash and then pay the, the coffee shop with cash. Right. The model for Bitcoin, this doesn't happen, not because there's a regulation against it, because the Bitcoin network doesn't have the capacity to handle it. And you don't think Lightning Network is going to fill that role? No, no, absolutely not. It's it, it could do it, but basically you need centralized ledgers. It's the only way, it's the way to do it. So let me ask you this. That's an interesting point I just thought about. There are some people who have come out and they've said that Bitcoin with the centralization of the ledgers like you're talking about, where it's held in exchanges and trusts, maybe banks, this could become like a new gold system where it's held by maybe a central authority and then there's credit issued on top of that. And then it's not until you go to that centralized authority to try to redeem your Bitcoin that you can actually get access to it. Do you think like something like that could happen where we go to no, like a, no, no, because basically you don't, you don't have fungibility. If you look at gold, US dollar when it was backed by gold, you still have the fungible cash, which is that US dollar payable in gold or the gold coin. Right. And yeah, that's something that I've noticed is that a lot of people say Bitcoin's like digital gold, but gold on the base layer is private and fungible. Bitcoin isn't. And well, that's part of it. Yeah, that's part of it. Yeah. But the problem is, is that the issuance on it is, is because of is that you can't issue a token, which is like cash on top of Bitcoin because of these regulations. It kind of defeats the purpose. You need mm-hmm. something as scalable for your token that you're going to put on top of Bitcoin. And then it's like, why use Bitcoin at that point? Right. So essentially, it becomes worse than fiat in this respect, because in fiat, you can always withdraw cash for small transactions, which, by the way, is where the biggest privacy risk lies. It's not the big stuff, it's the small stuff. Yeah, because, I mean, even if you want to use Bitcoin to do a small transaction at the coffee shop like you're talking about, Mm -hmm. then they can see what's inside your wallet. They can see who you're transacting with and all these things that you don't want them to see, right? But But you don't even get the point with it. You can't even do the transaction. Because you don't have the capacity <laughs> on the chain. So so yeah. why are you worried about what's private or not? Well, you can't even transact. Right, right. So, so it's, like, it's like, okay, I can't do this, but I'm worried if it's private or not. I mean, it doesn't make sense. Right, right. And so when do you think people are going to wake up to this? Because uh, I think a lot of people are buying this stuff now to hedge against inflation. Uh, it's a store of value, they say. Uh, it's not supposed to be used as money. That's like what Michael Saylor says. He wants the U.S. dollar to be the world reserve currency and Bitcoin to be digital gold that backs that. Uh, I have many problems with that. I'm sure you do, too. But when are people going to say, you know what, if the number stops going up, I don't know what the reason I hold Bitcoin is. Maybe I'd rather just own gold or maybe I'll just go to Monero or something like this. Like what's the proposition when the price stops going up? uh, It's interesting you mentioned this point because it's a very interesting book. Um, there's a little, uh, it's about 50 pages long, by uh, On the Origins of Money by Carl Menger. You can download it from the uh, Mises Institute. And it goes into the whole argument of the origins of money from the perspective of gold. This is an Austrian perspective. And essentially the argument is that the value of gold is as money arises from the fact that you have a sh- small bid-ask spread in, mo- in, in modern terminology. So it's the most liquid c- 
commodity in the marketplace until halfway is natural for becoming money. Mm. This is the basic. This is where Mises got his ideas from. If you look at the Keynesian approach, the argument is, again, is that money, it's the same argument, but what they're saying is we can increase the money supply to essentially stimulate the economy, which is true for a small amount, but when it gets really big, it doesn't work. It works to a certain degree, but then it stops working. But regardless of the, of the point of view you take, you have this idea that the value of money is in reducing this bid-ass spread in the marketplace. So you want to make the transaction fees low. That's what led to gold having value. You can use it as a medium of exchange. Therefore, that leads to it becoming an, a store value. If you take the capability to transact individually out of Bitcoin, then it defeats the purpose of this reducing the bid aspirates and it defeats the justification for it as medium of exchange. So you're saying the fact that Bitcoin is considered money is in and of itself problematic, which we already know is the fungibility, but if it can't be used practically, I mean... Put privacy and fungibility aside for a moment. Yeah. If the fact that... It cannot be used as money with, and with low fees because of its limited size, makes it ineligible to be money. Hmm. And therefore, it ceases to have a value as a store of value. I know this is very controversial because you don't have that justification of what gives it its value. What gives it money value doesn't matter what. If it, because it's the US dollar, the state issued money, what gives it value is the fact that it's liquid, it's the fact that you can trade it in a highly liquid fashion. And it keeps its value long enough at what it matters. Most people don't care what the U.S. dollars that they have are going to be worth 100 years from now because they're going to spend them the next two weeks. Why are you going to care what it's going to be worth 100 years from now? Yeah. If you want longevity, you buy something else. Mm. But the point is, the point of money, no matter how you look at it, whether it's state, whether it's commodity-based, or the new explosion, which is basically based on, on, uh, on usefulness, it comes down to the same thing. It comes down to do you lower that bid-ass spread? So why would you pick Monero or Bitcoin? Well, you pick Monero or Bitcoin because it actually functions more efficiently as a transactional currency. That makes it a better store of value. So you can't, you can't divorce the cyberpunk from the Wall Street investor. They need each other in a sense. You need someone to say, okay, this thing has got a store value in the future, so I'm going to put my money at risk and say it's got value holding it and then the person who's going to spend it they got something they can spend so they all need each other mm -hmm. i agree my personal perspective is that uh crypto is a better medium of exchange particularly monero and gold and silver are better stores of value because gold and silver it doesn't just have that little bit of spread like you're talking about but it has a use use cases outside of money you know you could put uh gold in your house it could be used as jewelry you could flake it onto stakes <laughs> like we've talked about i mean it also serves as a uh, way to denote status in a hierarchy. I and mean, this has been mm -hmm. a use for gold for thousands of years, and we can't anticipate that hierarchical status is going away. So that store of value is going to continue into the future, whether or not it's used as money. The same can't really be said for cryptocurrency because there are innovations going on all the time. And who knows if that crypto is going to be surpassed by another competitor to accomplish the function of money. Well, I mean, the argument would be Monero replacing Bitcoin. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean that would be the basic argument you say. But don't dismiss gold as money. And let me give you an example. 
Um, an ounce of gold, if you if you were to buy an ounce of gold today with cash, how many bills would you need? Highest denomination in the United States is a hundred dollar bill. Yes, you about probably eighteen bills. Eighteen bills. Now go back twenty five years. The highest denomination bill was a thousand dollars. We had a thousand dollar bill. Oh yeah. Oh wow. You had we had them in Canada. Oh, yeah. It's crazy how with inflation we don't. Have yeah, 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 yeah. So the price of gold could have been three hundred dollars. You buy three ounces of gold. So the factor is roughly sixty-four. So if you want portable money, gold is a far better choice than cash today. Hmm. Thirty years ago, cash was a better choice. Interesting. Yeah, in Venezuela, they are carrying around little nuggets of gold and they're shaving it off. For purchases that's correct so gold has got this this capability of home money that people have dismissed uh and quite honestly i mean if you go to a bank and say i want to withdraw fifty thousand dollars in cash you're gonna get a ton of questions if you buy fifty thousand dollars with the gold you're not gonna get the same type of you'll probably be arrested right there <laughs> no in the first case you might be well it depends but but what i'm saying is that the dynamics are very different mm. so gold is kind of went back again and recovered its useless money. And and the reason that paper money was invented in the first place is to produce something that's lighter to move around than gold. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's interesting. There are a few people in crypto who want to admit the value of gold that I've seen. Uh, it's typically either crypto or gold. Gold's a thing of the past. Crypto's the future. So what are your thoughts on Peter Schiff? Because he gets a lot of flack for that. I think he doesn't give enough credit to crypto, but he does make good points that I don't think people in crypto are willing to seed, in my opinion. Well, okay, I'm a Spanish heritage, and I'm going to backtrack on this for a moment. When the uh, conquistadors, and by the way, conquistador means conquer in Spanish, uh, went into uh, South and Central America, and they basically plundered the gold from the Incas. They flooded the European market of gold. Mm. Uh, so the, the and this is why the British were, were sinking all the ships and all this kind of stuff. So, so one of the biggest risk factors for gold that it has is that someone figures out a way how to mine asteroids. That's I think the big risk factors are still about. The reason why why cryptocurrency has been a much better investment than gold is simply because it hasn't reached its potential. Yeah, it's an adoption phase. It's an adoption phase, exactly. So this. Peter Schiff's point is, and this is the same thing you can say about Warren Buffett, he's not looking at Bitcoin today. It has failed as a transactional currency. So, yes, I can see that Warren Buffett's, and I understand exactly where Warren Buffett's coming. He's a fundamental investor. He looks at Bitcoin. What does this thing do? It does nothing. Yeah. So so he can. I can see his point of view because, basically, if it doesn't function as a currency, then what is the point? So, and that's a very limited, and I think Peter Schiff cannot make a similar comment about, about Bitcoin. What is the point? Once you take away that usage as a currency, gold has that usage as a currency. Bitcoin does not. And that's the problem. So let me play devil's advocate for the Bitcoin bros. I was watching uh, Mark Moss the other day, mm -hmm. and he was talking about how it's not just a currency. It could be the basis for which apps are built. Um, and he's talking about social media applications being built on Bitcoin. He's talking about uh, other things which are popping up. So what are your thoughts on that? Uh, people argue that it's more than just money. It's a basis for the Internet 
uh, or a new kind of internet or something like this. If you can't even do a simple transaction from A to B, you're going to build an app on top of the thing? Yeah. You don't have the capacity. This is the problem. That's what I thought. I mean, I was thinking... I mean, like there's a huge disconnect between the reality of that one megabyte block size and what people think you could do on this thing. You could, mm-hmm. you know, so if you can't even do a tr- simple transactions, how on earth are you going to build an, an infrastructure of software on top of the thing? Right. And some people then say, how about Bitcoin SV? This is the original version of Bitcoin. I don't know if you've looked too much into that, but I hear Rafael yes. Laverde talking a little bit about that. And he seems to be pretty hype on Bitcoin SV. And he says that can function the way that Bitcoin is meant to. Do you have any thoughts on that? I, I barely know. Oh, I do have a big thought on that. And go back to Monero. How does Monero's fees work? Right, so... Okay, so let's look at the problem. You have the adaptive block size. You have the minimum fee in, that is allowed falls as a square. Why? Because the transactions have a fixed size. But the block size grows. So the smallest amount you can scale it by, it's a smaller amount, is quadratic. And for a given rate of scaling, it's linear. Mm. Okay, so let's stop and look at the problem. So now, in Monero, what we have, what I propose fees, we're going into hard fork, it's going to be, some are going to be linear, some are going to be quadratic. The lower ones are going to, two lower ones are quadratic, and the top ones are going to be linear. That allows the market to kind of figure out where it wants to go. So you're going to have a, a constant rate of growth. You need a linear scaling in Monero. Or for the minimal rate of growth is quadratic, but you get a slower rate of growth each time. Okay, so you do the math. What's your what, what's your fee and reward? The fee and reward in Monero will either stay constant or fall. Once you hit tail emission, we hit tail emission. As you make the block size bigger, the fees and reward, the percentage of the minus reward goes down or stays constant. Okay, so now you're telling me that you take away the penalty restriction on fees that we have in Monero and you're going to have a higher increase in fees? The problem Bitcoin SV has at the most basic level is it doesn't have a tail emission. It will not work. It will fail as that block reward goes down. Interesting. So you, you could do that with Dogecoin if you created a massive block sizes. And if you can figure out, you can use surveillance to get around spam. Fair enough. But not with Bitcoin SV. So you are very confident in this, we need tail emission. Uh, Absolutely. Because this is interesting. I was looking into Darrow. I don't know if you've heard about Darrow. And one of the things that they're doing is they're actually going from tail emission to a hard cap. And they made the argument, well, this makes people more confident in the supply. Uh, This makes it so that there isn't this inflation problem uh which i don't see too much being an issue i mean incentivizes miners it does everything you know about uh why do they do that uh other does it complicate the supply auditability issue no uh tail emission i don't think it complicates the marketing it complicates the marketing it's a lot easier to tell somebody there's a maximum supply than there's a maximum supply per minute right that's the reason it's a marketing question and that's the problem. It's marketing. It's not about how it works. It's the sales. This is why Bitcoin has been so successful. It sells, but it doesn't work. And that's the problem. Mm. 
And, and and so essentially what we have, and this is why they have to move on to centralized ledgers. They have to restrict the process. They have to do all this kind of stuff. So it does not work because you have this follow. How are you going to pay the miners? So I do have a question in regards to that. Yes. Um, the price has been somewhat mm -hmm. lackluster for Monero. Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. see energy costs increasing for Monero and the block awards are going down. One of my questions was, how profitable is it for miners right now? Do we anticipate that even with the tail emission, they're going to be well incentivized to mine this? Well, sure they are. I mean, because basically what happens is the, the energy costs, are not, uh, the, what's happening is you get faster and faster processes. So what you're seeing to, to cause the, um, the hash rate to go up in Monero is primarily driven by the fact that you have higher and higher processes. But keep in mind that if your price is low, then you have to secure less. If your price is high, you have to secure more. Hmm. So it's kind of like a wash in that respect. But no, I mean, uh, Monero's, I mean, in fact, you can predict, if you assume the same, you can predict mathematically, if you assume the same price differential between Monero and Bitcoin, when the Monero chain will be more secure than the Bitcoin chain. Yeah. I mean, this is a mathematical certainty. All you have to figure out is, is the halving, how many halvings you need. So you get a factor of 200. Mm. And then you have, and, and then you say, well, for, for for whatever. Now, of course, what could happen is that there is a flee away from these foreign block reward co uh, coins to to Monero and to Dogecoin. I mean, I think it's a reason why Elon Musk picked Dogecoin. I think he understands this issue much better than a lot of other people. That's why he picked Dogecoin, and he was too scared to go look at Monero. Yeah, he's already got the regulators on him enough. <laughs> he doesn't want to talk. About I mean, you know, like, like it's, <laughs> but that's, uh, but that's essentially the reason I think he went for Dogecoin. Uh, I think he recognized this problem. Now, Dogecoin. The other thing about Monero to keep in mind with our tail emission is it's just below the historical inflation rate of gold. Mm. And this is a critical point because so you got the Austrians guy off the. Wait a minute, you know, in fact, what Monero is a much better model for gold than Bitcoin ever. Yeah, that's one thing that I hear uh, from one of my buddies, Lutz, from Pirate Chain. Uh, he says that we don't want to have inflation. We don't want to steal the purchasing power of the people involved in our network. But people have been using gold for thousands of years, and there's always been a slow inflation rate uh, because people that's can correct. mine it. So that's correct. we already have a pretty good use case and pretty good test case for that, right? So yeah, I mean, gold, the model, if you think about gold today, gold has been mined for millennia. Bitcoin is supposed to be mined for 140 years. Very different. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're not, you can pay it up as an oranges. And so, so you want to model gold because there's historical success over long periods of time. It has been um, as a store of value. Then you've got to model gold. Well, then you're going to need this, this constant inflation rate that Monero has. That's what you want to do. Mm. Not this hyper thing. The other problem that people forget about, and it's also true about gold, but it's also true about Monero, is the fact that you have a lost coin scenario. So your tail emission is going to end up being a dynamic balance of lost coins. So you end up with some unknown maximum supply, which is lower than the nominal maximum supply. Yeah. Because a certain percentage of the coins are not. So, I mean, that's, 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 uh, but a lot of people will say any coin that's got a fixed number of coins will not work as a transactional currency, period. Now, let me ask you this. Um, those are good points. The Bitcoin bros will say, hey, at least we can audit our supply. 
at least people know how many coins are out there because you had just mentioned some get lost uh and so we really don't know but i was looking on reddit and it looks actually pretty easy to audit the supply for Monero. you just have to type in a couple commands uh from what yeah. somebody's said and then you could see what the total block rewards were and you can match that up with the fees and stuff like this so is it easy to audit the supply of Monero? Because that is a huge question sure in so many people's minds. Sure it is. Yeah. I mean, it's right in the code. And the problem is, is the different the reason people get wound up about it is in some ways, I think it's what you need to use is university level math that's behind the code, as opposed to elementary school math, but it's still math. Yeah. So you're using a, a Pedersen commitment as opposed to a a uh, just straight addition. But, I mean, the problem you get into, you're getting all these, uh, you're getting something more sophisticated how you prove the supply, but it's still a mathematical analysis, and that's in the code. So, yeah, you just type in two commands and you audit the code. But that it's 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 not as intuitive because you, you, it's not elementary school math. You're looking postgraduate math, but it's still math. It's the same. That's the difference. Yeah. And, and, yeah, I mean, so it's in the code and you can audit it. So it's not now, of course, what you get is the maximum supply, which is the same thing you get in Bitcoin. You have no idea if Bitcoins have lost a lot. You can kind of try to surmise because they haven't moved it all this kind of stuff. But mm. and you got in Monero because someone might use that particular output as a as a fake in a in a mix in a mixer. Mm. But but yeah, yeah, I mean that's that's the the difference in the math. But yeah, it's still math. Because that's just one of the huge things that people shy away from Monero for. Oh, we don't know how many coins are there. What if there's an inflation problem? I even saw Roger Ver uh, talk about that in one of his videos, but I think somebody had enlightened him on his video. Uh, but yeah, I mean, at least we covered that. So I hope yeah. you don't mind. I'm jumping all over the place. Oh, so no problem. No, no, just continue. Not as much time as you need. So, so that's fine. Fantastic. I have so many questions. So no. uh, back, back to Europe, um, there was something that came out a few weeks ago where Swedish officials had said that, you know, proof of work is very environmentally damaging. We might want to get rid of proof of work. We may want to ban Bitcoin mining. Now, we know that Monero is also uh, proof of work oriented. We know Europe is going through uh, energy problems, so they could have to ration energy in the future. And given the ESG and all these other things going on, they could make a move to regulate proof of work away for proof of stake favoritism that seems to be a trend that i'm seeing uh what are your thoughts on that do you think monero could adapt to this uh there's just so much to dig into there okay it's a couple a whole bunch of definitions here the first thing to look at objectively is what's your transaction cost your, your energy cost per transaction if you limit the block size then your energy cost per transaction is going to be humongous if you don't cap the the block size like Monero is done, your energy cost per transaction could be the minimums. Hmm. So the first thing to, to recognize in this debate is that how other energy per transaction in Bitcoin and Monero are fundamentally different. And it precisely goes back to the scalability. Mm, that's interesting. I didn't think about that. So you got to look at how much is each transaction costing in energy and what is the limit. Bitcoin has a serious problem there because they're limiting the, the energy per transaction. The fact they're limiting the number of transactions. Monero doesn't because you can scale. Mm. So that's so the key yeah. response in the first level on this one. Then you get into the question of proof of work versus proof of stake. And then you question about the environmental footprint. Now, here's the problem. When you're saying that you're shooting the messenger, because the problem is, is you haven't priced your energy properly. And by the way, what I'm saying is 
bluntly, your carbon tax is too low. That's why you have a problem with Bitcoin mining. If it's cost effective to mine Bitcoin or Monero for that matter, by burning coal, your carbon tax is too low. Raise the carbon tax. Don't shoot the messenger. You want to raise carbon taxes on the Bitcoin bros? I want to raise carbon taxes on coal. In Uh, that market of Bitcoin, not generally, will find the most cost-effective source of energy. And if you factor in all the costs, including the, the externalities of environmental issues, you will then address the problem. The trouble is, is that they're subsidizing coal. So then if you subsidize a coal, you create an artificial subsidy. You're not really factoring in the true cost of burning coal. And then people will mine Bitcoin with it. So again, you're shooting the messenger, in this case, Bitcoin. So the Swedes have a problem with carbon footprint of Bitcoin mining. What they need to do is raise the carbon tax. Period. On everything. Well, it already looks like so many of the Bitcoin miners are trying to be carbon neutral. And it looks like they're implementing however methods they can to do that. And I think they're doing that so that they could go to the regulators at one point to say, hey, we're mining this stuff environmentally friendly. Anyone who wants to get into this market should have to do the same. And so they raise a barrier of entry to maybe prevent other people from getting into the market and consolidating that market share. I think that's what they're going to do. That's what they should do. But I mean, the thing is also, and this is true about Bitcoin mining, this is for Monero mining, is that you really you have a very high flexibility of source of energy you can use. You basically want to use energy that otherwise would have gone to waste. So you really go around around the world and pick the cheapest possible energy you can find. If it reflects the true environmental footprint, then you're fine. Mm. Most of the time it will be renewables because renewables tend to have <clears throat> sizable variabilities. But it could even be things like nuclear. Nuclear, for example, you produce a certain flat amount of energy. You don't want to change the rate. <clears throat> you can't turn reactors up and down. Easily. You have to run them at a certain constant rate. So when your demand is low, then you mine. It's the same thing with solar. You're going to get a, a, a surplus of energy in the summer, uh, and you're going to get a, a, a less in the winter. Well, you've got to find a market. I mean, I'm looking for right now putting solar on my home. And I live in Vancouver, and I know what, BC, what, what the local utility, BC Hydro, will pay me. I know the Monero network will pay me more money. So if I want to make a solar panel installation cost-effective, Mining Monero is actually one way to do it. Interesting. Hmm. Because what you're doing is you're, you're maximizing the, the return and, and versus the cost of setting up renewables. And the thing with renewables is, is you're going to get surpluses of energy at a certain point. You, there's nothing you can do with. So if you have a market for that energy, that makes that renewable a lot more profitable and more cost effective. So one of the concerns that I have is that they could use the environmental argument in order to have proof of stake come to the fore instead of proof of work. And proof of stake seems to be more amenable to the authorities because they can regulate it better. Maybe they could buy more coins and have more influence over the governance structure. Do you think that they could use the environmental argument as kind of like a smokescreen in order to get cryptos that they want adopted instead of Bitcoin and Minera? It's it's definitely a case because here's the problem. Proof of stake only really works if you regulate the stakers. So you actually need a government regulating it for it to work. Well, can't the stakers be regulatory authorities? Well, I think what's happening is that the stakers are going to be regulated entities like VASPs or exchanges. 
And this is what, what's going to happen with Ethereum. I mean, Ethereum, basically, most of it will be staked in exchanges, and they will have enough of a control over the thing that they're effectively – that's make it secure because they provided you regulate. Now, here's the problem. Just because you're regulating doesn't mean that someone can go rogue and go, go back to that short situation if, if an exchange is massively short Ethereum and, it's, and they're also staking it. Well, it's economically to their advantage to wreak havoc with the Ethereum network mm. in order to get out of the short. Oh, that's interesting. I, I mean, I formulated it and I put this on Bitcoin Talk. They, they better some, make a lot of money from that because they're going to ruin the network forever if they do that. No, no, but they're getting out of the debt. They're short. Right. Like if you're, said, if yeah. you're facing a, if you if you're short a massive amount of Ethereum, for example. Mm. You, you owe all this Ethereum. You have a smaller amount of deposit from your clients. And you're staking their, this Ethereum. But you got this much bigger short position. And you're going to go bust. Uh, yeah. Okay. They're coming down with me. So <laughs> I'm going to base. No, actually, what you do is you take out the, the Ethereum. You, you crash the price of Ethereum. Mm-hmm. But you can still make money on Bitcoin or Monero or something else. Oh. Oh, yeah. Okay. This is the problem. I mean, so you have this this entity that's significantly short, mm-hmm. staking the coins. Well, now they have an incentive not to mine it, not to stake it in, in the most effective way, but I have to stake it in a way that's negative to the network in order to cause the price to fall. What is one way that they could do that? Uh, they cannot validate uh, legitimate ones that aren't. Not validate legitimate construction, slow the network down, mine NT blocks. I mean, you, you can think of 20 different things you could do. Even double spends or something. I mean, you go on and on and on. The whole premise of proof of stake is that you're going to act in the best interest of the network because you have stake in the network. But you may have stake in the network crashing. That's my point. Ah. I mean, I go. I mean, when I Mm. I actually put this in Bitcoin talk in 2015, I call the second pirate savings and trust attack of proof of stake, and it was modeled after trend on Chevers. And his massive Bitcoin short. He had half a million Bitcoins. Yep. Now, if he kept some of them, I think he sold the most for, for US dollars. But if he kept it for a, a portion of it, which he could have done, he could still wreck enough havoc on the network if he was staking it to get out of a problem and cause the price to crash. If the price crashes, then he can cover his debt. Wow. And wow. then he's off the hook. Yeah. And that's so that the problem. And Zcash is going to proof of stake. It looks like they're making that transition. What do you think about Zcash? What do you think about that move that they're making? Well, I mean, if you go to proof of stake, it's the same problem. I mean, Zcash, I think, is growing from problem to problem. First of all, the, the transaction rates are going down. They're they're, they're they're the bottom in the system. They, they, they've, they've lost the privacy battle to Monero. And now they're going to go to proof of stake. I mean, saying, well, okay, this is more, and someone's going to attack it or someone. But again, it lends itself to, I mean, back to this Bitcoin, to this shorting problem we're talking. If you're an exchange and they're staking a coin and they're shorting it, mm-hmm. I mean, think about this. Yeah. 
That's a huge flaw. That's That's huge. (laughs) So if they're not short the coin and they're staking the coin. They could just nuke it. Basically, that's my point. And and there's no way the proof of stake network can detect this. So do you think Vitalik Buterin is aware of this? Charles Hoskinson? I've never heard anyone mention this, but this seems to be a pretty significant issue. Well, I bet, um, I bet Charles has enough Cardano to do that to his own network if he wanted to. I mean, if you have large holders that are so the whales are protecting it and they're not shorting it, they could protect it. But definitely, if it's dominated by exchanges, then they, they're going to have a problem. And so you need, okay, so now you have a, a bunch of whales essentially propping it up. Because they have staking pools that they're starting to make where people can stake with each other. And who knows who runs those pools, right? Because a lot yeah, of those pools, I, I think, are uh, sponsored by exchanges like Coinbase. Okay, but here's the problem. If the sponsor of the pool is short, that's the key player because that's the player that is going to decide how it's staked. They could subtly subvert the network. Mm. And, and that's what, very difficult, I think, for regulators to deal with. But that's about the only way you can make it work. And you also have to rely, I believe, on the other uh, node operators, the other stakers, to correct those mistakes, right? What if they get caught off guard? Well, I mean, the point is that you can do things that are legal in the network but detrimental to the network. You don't have to – you can do like, – like, for example, you simply stop processing transactions or you jack up – you do all sorts of things. Or you jack up the fees. Or, you know, you do things that could be negative, but it's still there's still consensus. Hmm. So proof of stake, no go. Uh, no go. Stay away from that. Stay away from it. I mean, that's the problem with it. But, I mean, go back to the environmental argument. Don't shoot the messenger. Hmm. If you're worried about the environmental footprint of proof of work, your carbon tax is too low. Not for, for everybody, not just for that particular application. Interesting, interesting. And I don't even think it's that environmentally damaging to begin with versus other things that are going on, of course. Uh, it, depends, you know. it depends on how you're made it. Argue, I mean, yeah, you, can argue, you can argue the environmental case, but I mean, that, that, that's how I would, look, I would look at the problem is, is you're shooting the messenger in, in, in this example. So talking more about uh, ESG, I think that whatever is going on in Europe right now in regards to that is probably spooking a lot of European miners over to the United States. There seems to be a huge migration of Bitcoin miners going to the United States, especially from China, from Turkey, now from India, it seems. Mm-hmm. And we could get over 50% of the hash rate in the United States and certainly between the United States and Canada. Um, what are the implications of that? Because I'm concerned OFAC will be able to increasingly have control over that hash rate or at least influence and they'll be able to blacklist uh, transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain. What are your okay. thoughts on that? European energy prices have been considerably higher than American, the North American energy prices. So it's to be expected that people would not mine in European countries, particularly heavily centralized mining operations like in the case of uh, Bitcoin. Uh, Monero, I think, is less vulnerable, uh, mainly because you can mine to produce heat in the winter. I've done that. Nice. I mean, yeah. this is what was this how the, the Arctic mine thing came from. That's another story. But basically, I used to live in Prince George, British Columbia. And quite honestly, the economics of mining Monero, and uh, when it's minus 40, and minus 40 is where the Celsius 
and Fahrenheit scales meet. Yeah. Or plus 40 was, uh, I think, 108 Fahrenheit. The economics are very different. You've got to look at the point of the heat. Is it a think something you need to get rid of? Or is it something that you need to, that is useful? I would suspect Canada would be a better location in the United States simply because it's cold. Hmm. I'm serious. I'm perfectly serious. The other place where you want to mine would be Russia. The Ruskies. They're probably mine a lot over there. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, seriously, cold is an advantage in this game. Mm, right. I you mean, that's, that's uh, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so places like Quebec and British Columbia, which has a lot of hydropower, but it's also going to get, a, especially in the north, can get quite very cold. Could be very attractive areas. Uh, so, yes, energy prices are lower in North America. You could also find areas that have a very large solar components, and that may happen in the United States, in particular in the southern United States, where that could offset the, the – in the summer, you have a lot of excess energy. So, again, that could be attractive. So if you, if you have cheap energy, that's where, you're gonna, where your mining is going to be. Now, the next point that you're getting at, and this was actually a Canadian company that started this business, is that they were going to start censoring um, transactions based on who is uh, in, in Bitcoin. Yeah, that could be a problem. And that's not something that we could run into with Monero because well, well, we have decentralized mining pools. Know? They don't know who's mining this stuff. No, 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 no. You don't know who the transaction is. Well, that too. Oh, of course. Oh, okay, 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 okay. So, 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 so what are you mining? I mean, you have no uh, clue. Yeah. So, so if you, if you encrypt everything, then how are you going to know what you're mining? So you can't really censor on a miner. But they can't 51% attack it easily either. Uh that's not something to worry about. Now, the big advantage Monero also has, of course, is that we use CPU mining, so that lends itself more to this decentralized opportunistic mining. Okay, I want to heat my home by mining, or I, or I want to use a laptop because I'm freezing cold and I want to mine Monero to stay warm. Uh, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. You know, I mean, mm. it lends itself more, I think, to all that. It, there was a case where they were using it to exercise drones that were supposed to be used by law enforcement to go uh, kamikaze against uh, an active shooter. And it was actually a, a talk in, uh, I think it was in Monero Con in 2019 about this, that they, were, they had these drones that was, the idea was you had an active shooter. And so you send a swarm of drones at the active shooter to to uh, sort of a kamikaze attack essentially on the, on the shooter to distract yeah. the shooter so that law enforcement could get them. And so these drones have these fancy batteries that needed to be exercised, and they were going to mine Monero to keep these things in shape and stuff like that. So, so a lot of this opportunistic mining, where you're you're doing something else, and this is kind of like a side product of it. That I think Monero, because of CPU mining, is way more effective than than uh, having dedicated ASICs. Mm. And of course, that also takes a sting out of the environmental argument, but. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the, the, the problem that we're talking about, I think it was a Canadian mining pool that was actually proposing that they would uh, they were going to censor certain transactions on at the mining level in Bitcoin, yes. And wow. the movement away from mining to, to China and the United States is, is going to make that, increase the risk of that, definitely. Because that's part of ESG, that's part of the social and governance uh, push that they're having right now. And I think Larry Fink from BlackRock uh, sent out a letter to all the companies that he's invested in. He's saying, look, you have to go ESG or we're not going to invest in you. And BlackRock is investing heavily in Bitcoin mining operations. So I suspect that that could be part of the future for sure. 
and with as much uh, that is going on with centralized ledger uh, developments, mm-hmm. people keeping their Bitcoin on exchanges and trust and things like this. I, I definitely see a centralization thing happening, even though a lot of the Bitcoin bros talk about how decentralized it is. This seems to be a trend which is going towards centralization. Would you agree? Well, I think it's already happened. Mm. I mean, I I, I, I I go back to the Coinbase example. I mean, the, the it's, it has to be centralized because otherwise the Bitcoin cap- doesn't have the capacity. So they could not comply with the Community Facious Trading Commission request to settle on chain. And in fact, they have to stop trading the futures and the derivatives for that reason. Mm. So it's already happened. It's not that it's going to happen. It's already happened. Uh, whether you do it through mining or whether you do it through through centralization, through exchanges or both, yeah, but it's definitely happening. Bitcoin is not a cyberpunk company. Uh, currency cannot do that because it can't scale. Right. And it's and then the privacy element means it's censorable at the mining level. Uh, I mean, just take a look at what happened to the when China banned Bitcoin mining. Take a look at what happened to the Bitcoin hash rate. Take a look at what happened to the Monero hash rate. What did happen? Well, Bitcoin hash rate went down by about half. Monero hash rate didn't even blink. All of it. Let's go. Awesome. And then Bitcoin Cash's hash rate went down by about 80%. Oh. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Because <laughs> they were on the tail end of the thing, you know? Yeah. So that's what happened. So that's it's already happened. It's not that it's happening. We're going to happen. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think that's because Chinese are mining Monero to a significant degree? They just didn't care about the ban because nobody knows they're mining it? Or is it happening outside of China just everywhere? Well, because Monero mining is more decentralized, way more decentralized than Bitcoin mining, simply because of the fact that you could do it with CPUs. Yeah. And you don't have huge mining operations that are, that are more vulnerable to this kind of thing. Bitcoin mining is dependent upon... Uh, ASICs, which are manufactured in China. Now, in many respects, having the ASICs manufactured in China and having the mining take place in the United States is better from a decentralization perspective. Yeah. But when it was mined in China, it's very easy to sort of have the manufacturer just go ahead and do mining. Now they've got to sell these things, export them somewhere else, and do the mining somewhere else, so that dynamic doesn't occur. Uh, But that, I think, is the reason. And the Bitcoin Cash example, as it's the tail end of the of the Bitcoin mining side, so they get much more violent fluctuations because they're mining with the same ASICs as, as uh, Bitcoin. So that's yeah. why you see much more volatility in the Bitcoin Cash hash rate. And I suspect going into the future, uh, if they move on with this ESG program, it's going to be harder to get ASICs hardware. Like they'll probably regulate it like they regulate. Uh, What's that stuff? Sudafed. <laughs> like you go into the. Sudafed. Uh, it, it's what they use to make meth, it, except it's also used for uh, clearing up your sinuses or whatever. It, oh, it okay, could be okay, like you're okay. put on a list for buying ASICs if it's part of like some ESG push that only people who have permits to mine Bitcoin uh, can mine it. Like, do you think that's coming? I think that's coming uh, if this well, yeah, yeah, push yeah, happens yeah. enough. It's definitely the same problem. I mean, if you got something very specialized like that, you can easily regulate it. Yeah, uh, and you can't do the same thing with CPUs. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only way you can really create a Monero ASIC is to create a green CPU. So you could create a, a, a CPU that gets rid of a lot of the stuff that's a bit periphery, like supporting transa- uh, proprietary software from forty years ago, 
which Intel does, or getting rid of the Intel management engine associated DRM and, and things like that. So you could create a very efficient CPU that only runs Linux, but you still mass, and then you could gain some efficiency on, on Monero mining by doing that, I think. But uh, that would then has also sort of their uses. I'm glad that you mentioned that because uh, I did a video recently on what would happen if they tried to come after Monero. Like they're just like, no holds barred, forget about the First Amendment, Fourth Amendment, blah, blah, blah. We're going to ban this stuff because our central bank digital currency is awesome. We don't want this competing with it. You had made posts on Reddit like four years ago talking about how they could encourage corporations like Apple, Google, Microsoft to do away with software on their products, which allows for people to mine Monero. A DRM attack, basically. Is Um, that still possible? Is that still a thing? Uh, the 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 problem there is is that you can use the censorship and built into a DRM system such as Apple iOS. And to, a, and to a growing degree, Windows, to prevent certain types of software from running. I mean, if you look at, there is actually a post uh, in Reddit from 2014, where up to 2014, if you're aware of this, uh, Apple censored on iOS all Bitcoin transactions, all Bitcoin transactions at all. So this really? is already happened. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> so you could not do Bitcoin apps on iOS and Apple. It's very easy for them to do. They just control the store. So it's just like Aurelia. And cool. and so there was a fellow on Reddit and he gave away it was a five or six Android devices to people who could demonstratively prove they destroyed their iPhones over this. Wow. And one of the fellows decided that he was going to use a high-powered rifle to do this. So he takes the iPhone to a uh, firing range, shooting range. And he basically blows it to pieces by shooting sizable bullets. And I'm not talking small things. I mean, you know, you see the size of projectiles that this thing was firing. It was like a really high-end rifle with a really fancy scope, and he showed up with other stuff. Like 50 cal or something. Oh, yeah, 50 caliber. Yeah, I think it was probably a 50 caliber projectile. Let's go. <laughs> and, and he smashed his iPhone with it. I mean, it was – and I think that video kind of got enough traction that Apple was embarrassed into allowing it. So this is something the Monero community has not experienced because it happened just before Monero came online, and Monero was not banned. It was banned. But definitely you can do that. You can do that with uh, any operating system which is proprietary and which has DRM in it. So you could do a DRM attack. Uh, that's definitely possible with Windows. It's definitely possible with Apple. Of course, not possible on Linux. You need open source software. It's the same thing. I mean, a Chinese government bans apps on iOS very easy. They just tell Apple not to put it in the Chinese store. So they can ban whatever they want, you know, the Ugas or... Or whatever, it's very easy to do. So this is happening all the time. Happen as long as you have these centralized stars. So yeah, that's the point of attack. So this is a way that they could effectively do a lot of damage to the Monero network without violating the First Amendment, Fourth Amendment, uh, or even having any government initiative. They just whisper in the ear the ear of Apple and Microsoft, say, "Hey, we don't like this crypto. Do what you can." But then what happens is the flip side of it is is that people are just going to go to Google Linux. Well, we would hope, right? I mean, well, adoption. I mean, would this happen to for the masses? Would they? Well, see this value in this to do that. 
this is where it starts getting interesting or people start hacking around it and on and on and on. And so you, they, it could be a major loss. I mean, like Microsoft, for example, has an entire GNU Linux distribution built into Windows 10 right now, which they, they started. It's very interesting. Uh, you can run essentially Linux applications on, on Windows 10 in this. And what it is, is an entire Ubuntu distribution. Initially, they actually modified the Windows kernel to run GNU. So you ended up with GNU slash Windows. Mm. Yes, I know Dr. Stallman will go nuts on this one. Um, and then they went and gave up on this idea, and they just basically put in a Linux kernel in it. And they virtualized it. Yeah. So because what's happened is all the developers have moved on to uh, GCC. Everybody's using GCC. So that's where the development's going on. So they had to deal with that, otherwise Apple was eating them alive. So that's the risk that these companies are facing. Uh, so yes, it could do that. You could actually use a censorship tool to do it. Hmm. Uh, it's easier to do it on, on Apple than it is on Windows. Uh, Apple is much more centralized in that respect because of the store. Windows still has this legacy Windows thing or the Windows applications where you allow them to run. But it's been a, a tightening of the process. You can definitely keep it out of the stores and all that. So yeah, that attack is definitely possible. So I like Cakewalk, for example, sponsor of the channel. They're wonderful. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. If they decide to make this move, Cakewalk's app could be taken off the Apple Store. Uh, Just like that. Android gone. And so, I mean. Harder on Android because on Android you can sideload. You can't on Apple. This What's is the reason why. Well, I mean, you, you don't take the app from the store. You, you either you, you run the APK and, and on Android you can run an APK, so you can actually install it for, without taking it from the from the store. You can't really do that on Apple. Okay. Apple is it's very much. I mean, I, I actually gave a talk in oh about seven eight years ago to a uh, civil liberties group, and it was part of the modeling was very simple. How would you technically implement the telescreens in George Orwell's 1984 with modern technology? And it's very simple. You take an iPod and you stick it in the wall. You take an iPod and stick it in the wall? You, you, take, you take an iPad and you stick it on the wall. Uh, it's got all the characteristics of the telescreen. All you have to do is tell Apple what you're going to put in and not allow and turn it off and turn it off. And there's a whole thing. Yeah. All you have to do, that's all you have to do. It's got a camera on it so you can spy. It's got a microphone on it. Mm -hmm. And you can control it so you can't turn it off. It's got geolocation. So they know where you're going. So they know exactly what this is. See, what Orwell got wrong in 1948 is he didn't visualize that the citizens would carry the telescreens in their pocket. Mm -hmm. That's the one point Orwell got wrong in 1948. Yeah. So the mindset was television sets, so you're sticking them in a fixed location. Not that they were carrying the telescreens in their pockets. So my next question is, if we truly want to have Monero succeed, we need to start acting beyond Monero in a Monero-like fashion. Uh, mm -hmm. We need to engage with open source software. Uh, we need to get rid of our iPhones probably uh, to get another phone. Uh, so there's just so much that goes into this. And for someone like me who's not tech savvy, uh, there's going to be a lot of research that needs to go into that. And so... Uh, as far as, well, yeah, so go ahead. 
Okay, so a couple of things. So a bunch of different things you can do. First of all, you want to have a free, open, a free liberal open source operating system. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean for everything, but you definitely want to have that available. I run pretty well my primary operating system that I use is GNU Linux. Uh, as to watch distribution, honestly, that's a matter of taste. I, I run Ubuntu and I run Criswell, uh, but I'm not going to get into this is better than that one. They're very similar. It's really whatever you feel most comfortable, you like the most. I don't see a huge difference between them mm. um, in this respect. And it doesn't have to be 100%. If you're 99.5% of the problems taken care of, you're okay. So you can have the odd driver that's proprietary, something like that, fine for your Wi-Fi. That isn't going to be a huge issue. Some people are really purists about it. That's fine for certain applications. But that's the first thing you need. You need to be running. And the easiest one to do is to do it on, 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 a, um, uh, on your laptop or your desktop. If you're running Windows, yeah, put it in a sandbox. Use it for whatever school or work or whatever it is that you want to do. That's fine. And, and you can have it. I mean, I run in a virtual machine, so you have a separate machine. for it. That's okay. DRM, and that means basically any mainstream content is a major threat, particularly in the United States, because they have very strong laws against circumventing DRM. Uh, Canada is a bit more lenient there, but the United States is a serious family to muck, mess around with DRM. So I don't think it's got DRM and it's potentially a security threat. Do hardware wallets have this as well? Uh, hard, I see hardware wallets. I'm not a big fan. I mean, I I, I don't use hardware wallets. I'll be honest about this. Uh, I, there are risks, and the I mean, I like just basically having a, a laptop which is running a free software. That's the simplest. I don't want to use Windows. I don't wouldn't know use hardware wallets is an option. But it, again, it's a whole thing open source. To what degree is do you trust the whole structure? There hasn't been backdoor or compromise or whatever. So that's the basic stuff. But yes, from a freedom perspective, you want to be running Linux, GNU Linux, at least on some of your computers. That I would consider critical. When it comes to mobile, uh, it's a lot tougher than on, than on desktop and laptop. But basically, rooted Android can be with a different ROM, can be an option. Or you simply take the minimalist mobile app portion. There's a generational argument here. I would, I can live without using my phone for everything. Because I, in fact, when I both use my phone a lot of times just to tether my computer. You use so you turn on your computer to 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 have my laptop access the internet. Okay. So basically, what I do is I tether the phone to the computer, and it allows me to run off the data plan of the phone. I got to get you to come over to my house and do my opsec. I need you to. Know, uh, That's I amazing, mean, it's, man. some people don't tell, tell me I have terrible opsec because I didn't put a, a sticker on top of the camera on my computer. <laughs> I always do that, literally. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, 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 and he made a real case. You know, you know, and I'm sitting in this casino hotel in Las Vegas with surveillance cameras everywhere. If you're going to hack somebody, you should hack the hotel. You don't worry about my camera. But, you know, I mean, but it was a very yeah. interesting commentary. You know, I mean, uh, you know, you got to listen to what everybody else has to say. But th this is the kind of stuff that you want to be doing. You don't have to go crazy on it, but the weakest point in the system is the endpoint. It's, it's actually the endpoint in the network. I got that question in Kiev. Somebody asked me, how do I run Monero so that the Ukrainian KGB doesn't go after me? Literally, that was the question that was asked to me. And I told them, they're more likely going to target your computer than they're going to target the network. Mm -hmm. So that's where you're, the first thing you have to do. Um, so anything is proprietary. Uh, if you can watch Netflix on it, it's, it's a kill.
It's a good rule. If you can watch the NFL on it, it's insecure. If you can watch Major League Baseball or something like that, it's insecure. That's that's sort of the rule on that. Hmm. So you want you want free software, uh, open source software. You want on your operating system on mobile. You can do it by rooting it and putting an alternate ROM. In Android, that's one way. Or you can get these newer phones that are coming out. Things like that are dedicated as uh, um, you know without they come up already with an open source system. This is somewhere in there. Uh, with with stock Android, I mean, I mean, some people you, you obviously have a lot more risk. Uh, I would definitely take Android any day over iOS because it's way more open. Um, but yeah, I mean, you've got to be tracked and stuff like that. So, but there's other there's simple things you can do. Like it could be as simple as just turning your location off on your phone. When do you need your location off all the time? Unless you're actually using a mapping application, turn it off. Turn your Bluetooth off when you go into a mall that says that they're going to track you with it. Yeah. Use your data or Wi-Fi if you don't trust the 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 signal. These things are, are sort of important from that perspective. Another simple technique for privacy that most people ignore these days: pay cash for small amounts. Right. Right. I mean, it, uh, it's like if you're going to go to a coffee shop and buy a cup of coffee and a meal, pay cash with it. Don't use a debit card. You don't need one. Yes, there are situations where it makes sense, like in a hotel where you want to tell the hotel that you have credit so you're not going to trash the room. Fair enough. I can understand that. Mm. Uh, that's one of the first applications to credit cards. It actually makes sense. Or you rent a car or something like that. Fair enough. But you don't have to, to use these centralized ledgers for every single transaction, especially for the small stuff. Right. And it doesn't matter if you live in Europe and you've got a thousand euro limit. The, what I'm talking about is well below that limit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you and Dave Ramsey get along a lot. He loves using cash too. <laughs> I mean, I mean, uh, it's it's a simple solution. I visualize sometimes. I, I visualize debit machines that spread of the COVID virus. But it was a study in Canada where they actually looked at the dirtiest item in a supermarket. It was the debit machine, as far as viruses and bacteria. Really? Wow. Yeah, the chip and pin terminal, especially chip and pin, is way dirtier than cash. From, from spreading viruses and bacteria. And it's interesting because China was just burning a year ago their cash, and they were saying, hey, everyone use digital. Everyone use your cards. Yeah, but, but, you, on cash. but if you think about it, how do you sanitize the inside of a debit machine? So you touch the card, you put the virus on the plastic, you insert it in the machine, you pull it out again, the next guy comes in, they insert the card, they grab the virus off the machine. I feel like you could be a secret agent or something, man. I feel like you could be working but, for the CIA with all this knowledge you've got. Man. I mean, these are Going simple things you can do. Yeah. You know, these are simple things you can do. You, you, you can simplify. So, so I'm a big believer in getting rid of 95% of the problem rather than 100% of the problem. So if you're worried about surveillance, get rid of 95% of the surveillance. Leave the 5%. That's fine. Well, I mean, they're going to... Find some way to get you somehow if they want to see you. Yeah, but, but uh, what I'm saying is you can eliminate a lot most of the problem by getting rid of 95, 90%, 95% of the problem. And Instead they can of track so many other people easily. So if you put up some roadblocks, you know, that's less of a probability they're going to actually look into you. 
actually a much more of a target if you got 100% than 95 or 90%. Because they're like, what's this dude got to hide? What's going on? With this yes. Guy? Yeah. That if you totally go off the grid like that, it's Is actually better. Beijing? What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you want to be, if you want to have OPSEC, I mean, that's what I'm saying. I mean, you're better off. I mean, I'd be totally open about my involvement with Monero. I don't hide it. Some people say, well, why? I don't see a. I think from my position is less of a risk. Some people might think the idea they're going to hide, but and that's good. You can do either way. Mm. But uh, I mean, those are simple things you can do. Like, like if you're worried about these kind of things, uh, something even as simple as turning your location off on your phone. You've got to, you don't have to root it. You don't have to do anything. You're on a standard stock Google phone, turn location off. Unless you actually are using it, turn it off. Yeah, and probably get off social media too, and check your social media apps because they're tracking you too for whatever reason. Well, see, this is interesting. This one works in Canada, but not in the United States. I actually used the fact that Facebook was on my phone to legally root my phone in Canada because Facebook was tracking me. Mm. Because yeah. privacy is a reason you can violate DRM in Canada. You can't do it in the United States, but it does work in Canada. But no, it depends on what it is. Uh, again, do you need an app to access social media? Sorry, what's that? You asked me something? Do you need an app to access social media? I guess you could use your computer. You could use your laptop with a browser that deletes all the cookies. Mm, yeah. That, you know, man, if you want to be private, you should just stay off social media. My no, opinion. I agree. I agree. But it's ways to mitigate the risk. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, in case of Facebook, I would say yes. In case of uh, the, 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 only, the entire business model is tracking. So, so that's a, an obvious example. But not for every social media. But again, you may want to limit just your exposure rather than just totally eliminate. Mm. Yeah, those are really yeah, good points. And, you know, I got to have you back on the show just to do a whole conversation about this stuff because I focus on the currency. But really, if we want this currency to succeed, we're going to have to figure out ways around the big monolithic big tech titans that are out there who control a lot of the flows of information and everything else. Right? Get your own domain name. You have your own domain name in your own server. Instead of using somebody else's VPNs and everything like that. Although I think you have to be careful with those because some of them are owned by some nefarious actors who may be able to VP tap into what you're doing from what I hear. VPNs have specific applications. I would be, you know, careful which ones you pick and which what you want to use them for. They're good in certain circumstances and certain applications. Absolutely. But they're, you know, it's a specialized product in my mind. Mm -hmm. So, well, Arctic Mile, we're coming up on two hours. We can uh, yeah, so that's, a few days. I, 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 I think, yeah, if you have questions, you know, whatever. One more question for you. Yes. I mean, there are so many developments going on with Monero, okay. atomic swaps. We just reached a new all-time high in transaction volume. What's your favorite thing going on right now? What's giving you the most hype? Well, a couple of things. Uh, obviously, the scaling improvements, where they're happening. But you know what I think from a privacy perspective is the biggest on the marketplace? Atomic swaps of Monero combined with Taproot and Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you why. Because what Taproot in Bitcoin does is every Taproot Bitcoin transaction is potentially an atomic swap with Monero. Think about that. So it would be impossible to figure out what the heck is going on with those Bitcoins that are doing that. Because you have no idea if, it's, if, the, if that chain that you're following has suddenly moved onto the Monero blockchain 
It's going to travel along the Monero blockchain. It's going to show up again back on the Bitcoin network somewhere else. So the combination of those two, and, and the interesting thing about it is you don't have to do a lot of atomic swaps. It's just a threat. It's a classic example. The threat is more effective than its execution. Interesting. So that's what I see is probably the biggest privacy involvement right now. And it's actually on the Bitcoin side. It's this double whammy element. So I suspect that that's going to turn into new coin join. Right. I mean, it's a more effective coin join in a way to sure send your Bitcoin to somebody else through an atomic swap. My only question there would be how confident would people on the Monero side be about the Bitcoin that they're getting? Right. What's their application? Are they going to actually run a chain analysis or try to figure out if they have taint or not on the right. thing? I mean, this is the, I hope it's all these kind of questions or, or do surveillance themselves. Um, so that's another uh, element. What is their application with the Bitcoin? I mean, do they want a Bitcoin that cannot be traced to them? Is that what they want? Uh, maybe they want to use it for collateral for a loan, or uh, maybe they want to uh, use that as a hopping uh, stack to get into other currencies. Who does? Maybe I mean, if, yeah. if they're going to go back and put if, let's say the Bitcoins came out of an exchange, and you want to put it back into another exchange, well, that might be a reasonable thing to do. It's not going to flag the chain analysis people. Right. Well, uh, surveillance people. My whole thing, though, is with Haveno now coming out, because a lot of the people out there who would want to do this atomic swap activity from Monero into Bitcoin, uh, they want to use Bitcoin just to uh, hop step into another currency on another exchange where you need Bitcoin first. With Haveno, with the base currency being Monero, I see less demand for that out there. Because basically what happens is that people would want to use Monero as a way of getting into these other currencies. Right. And if they can do a bridge between Monero and Fiat, then it becomes a really attractive way to go. Do you think that's going to happen with Haveno? Because that would just open a portal to another dimension if you could do that. Well, I mean, there are lots of places you can still trade Monero directly for Fiat. And that's uh, that's uh, uh, another big, big unknown because... Again, if you build a platform where the base currency is Monero and you're going to trade all these other things, mm-hmm. I mean, now all of a sudden, if you can go from fiat into Monero and then from Monero to whatever other coin you want to buy, now you've created privacy for the second coin down the street. Mm-hmm. Because so you can Monero's do that anonymous. Monero is going to be like a nexus. For huge flows going into many currencies, what you're saying because of this. Well, if again, I mean, the thing about privacy that it's it's the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, and this is what people don't realize. I actually dismissed Taproot and Bitcoin initially, and I was not a big uh, into atomic swaps, but I came to the realization that each one by themselves doesn't mean a lot. But both of them together are very powerful. It's the same thing with this example of Haveno. I mean. Again, you have a one thing in itself doesn't look so exciting, but maybe you combine it with all this other stuff. Now you've got something interesting. Right. And that makes it harder for our friends over at CypherTrace and Chainalysis. Uh, yeah, I think they're going to have a few problems because basically yeah. Taproot with, uh, especially Taproot on Bitcoin, is going to throw a real monkey wrench. Into their into what they're doing, and it's not just Bitcoin. It's not just Monero. It could be going to a Lightning channel. They don't know what's going on because obviously you got all these hidden swaps, and and so yeah, they're gonna have they already have problems as it is, 
and now we're going to have all these extra problems. Here's one hole that I do see, mm -hmm. which is that it's a capital asset. At least it's treated that way here in the United mm -hmm. States. Mm -hmm. And so if you trade your Bitcoin, uh, then it's either presumed that you're going from one wallet to another that you own, or you're getting rid of the asset completely, in which case you have to file a report when taxes mm -hmm. come along. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have to ha do some explaining as to what happened with that Bitcoin if they know that you had that Bitcoin in the first place, won't you? No, no. What you would have to do is just say, this is what I paid for it. This is what I sold it for. Here's my tax. But what if they make certain determinations as to what you're doing with your Bitcoin uh, worthy of reporting as well? Like if you do an atomic swap, you've got to report it, uh, yes. et cetera. So wouldn't that also... But here's where, it gets, here's where it gets interesting. Are you supposed to just report the capital gain or are you supposed to report who you did the atomic swap with? Does it depend on the amount? This is where it gets tricky. I mean, if it's just a straight reporting of the capital gain, which is really what the tax compliance is, but now they're, they're adding these other things where you think if it's over $10,000, you have to report, but if you receive it in the course of a business. Now, that rule that rule actually applies if you receive it in the course of a business. I don't know how it applies to a, a, a private trade but if you're doing that in a business, you definitely would have to report it, who you dealt with on the other end. And that could be problematic. Uh, but again, I mean, if you're just reporting the capital gain or loss, then that's all you report. I, this is what I paid for it. This is what I sold it for in terms of USD or CAD or whatever. Right. Now, hopefully they don't add more restrictions because that would complicate things like you said. But as of now... It seems to be pretty good. It seems to be pretty good. I wild. mean, basically, basically, again, but even if they set a cap over $10,000 for a majority of people, that is not unreasonable. They're not going to be trading those huge amounts. Mm -hmm. And and maybe the – see, my opinion on this is if, if they had any common sense that raised the limits and just focus on the large amounts and they were way more effective at catching money laundering and terrorist financing and this kind of stuff and trying to go over this little stuff because otherwise you just get overwhelmed with data. Yeah, well, I – I suspect that they're not even trying to catch that stuff, given so many banks have been caught doing money laundering for pretty bad people like terrorists and cartels mm -hmm. and things like this. Most of the banks, which, of course, uh, funnel money to politicians and such. So I think it's about tracking the little guy. I think that's why they're doing that. I mean, that $10,000 rule was put into place back in the 80s, right? And given no. inflation, the number should be a lot higher. If they the original... The original $10,000 rule in the United States was put in the 1970s. So the equivalent in visa B inflation would be roughly about $60,000, $70,000 today. Uh, ballpark figure, uh, there should be 100000 Canadian dollars instead of 10000 Right. They just tried to do the $600 thing, uh, which luckily they pushed back. But I think they want to see what the little guy is doing. And if there's something that gets in the way of them doing that, I think they're going to have a problem with that, and they're going to try to institute whatever regulations they can to get a better idea of what's going on. They'll die in a flood of data. Too if much to track. To Too much to track, yeah. I mean, that that is essentially the problem. If you want to cash dirty money, if, if, you want to, if you want to cash the most amount of dirty money for the least amount of dollars of cost, you set your thresholds high and you go after the really big guys because that's where it's cost effective. So you're far better off setting your threshold high and focusing your resources there. And then you're going to catch the dirty money, the terrorist financing, whatever it is you really worry about. If you, if you, you're not going to catch pickpockets with money laundering laws. There's other ways to catch pickpockets, but it's not money laundering laws. Yeah. 
in my opinion, it depends on who they want to go after. They could selectively enforce it, but they're not going to catch everybody that's actually breaking the law and is getting around these regulations, in my opinion. But they can selectively enforce to where they could look back at the blockchain uh, for somebody that they deem maybe politically problematic or otherwise and say, hey, you didn't file this report. You didn't do this or that. Keep in mind that you have time limits on all the players involved here, too. Uh, there's a five-year time limit that the bass have to hold data. It's not as easy to go back historically as the current stuff. Wait, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, seriously, I mean, for example, um, uh, an exchange in the United States, they have to keep the data, I believe, for five years. At the end of that five years, you no longer they're no longer obliged to keep that data. But doesn't the blockchain keep it forever? But you're losing that other correlation point. It's on the blockchain, but it's not on the exchange. So now you lost your 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 correlation point. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So that's where you have a problem because you have time, you have statutes of limitations, you have legal barriers to this kind of stuff. Um, Unless they deem it to be fraud, in which case there's no statute of limitations. But for that. then you have to prove that. Then you have a much higher standard of proof. Then you have a much higher again, again, again. Right, right, and, and 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 keep in mind the 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 exchange. If they don't have any cause to believe, any reason, they have no reason to keep the data. So they've taken it off the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cost them the, to cost them to store the money. Yeah, and the blockchain analytics companies, though, they don't necessarily store the data as much as they look at it. But they have another problem, and I'll tell you what it is. It's called the binomial theorem. The download theorem? The binomial theorem. Binomial theorem. And the problem is very simple. You have N outputs, and you have K outputs that are dirty, tainted, whatever. And you ask the following question. How many ways can I choose the dirty outputs out of the clean outputs? And that's the binomial coefficient. And that thing does not scale. Trust me. It's, uh, it's basically N factorial divided by K factorial times n minus k factorial. I know exactly what you're saying right now. <laughs> so now you have the needle in the haystack problem. You make the haystack bigger so it can't go back to scale. This is one of the reasons why if you need volume to have privacy. And you don't think artificial intelligence could be developed to account for all this? No? It's just too big? Too big. Okay. Yeah. Once you start talking about things that are going to start approaching, you know, how many atoms are in the universe and all this kind of stuff, you're getting into probability numbers that uh, all the molecules in a room getting into one corner is a final problem, people basically choking to death and stuff like that. I mean, this yeah. is kind of where you start getting into it. It's, it's, uh, this is where the numbers start to be problematic. And as you make these blockchains bigger, it becomes harder and harder to do. It's not exponential scaling, which is what we're dealing with say, from the use of a blockchain, it's factorial scale. Amazing. Let's end on that genius note. That's what anyway, right there. Arctic Mind, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, is there a place where people can go see your work? I know that you post a lot on Reddit. Is that the main place you hang out? The easiest place to get a hold of me sometimes is Reddit. Uh, you can email me. I mean, some people email me, and I must say, I, sometimes I get just so busy, I don't get to respond to everybody. But, but those are kind of the best places for me. I am, of course, on IRC and all the Monero channels, a lot of them. So I do monitor a lot of those. Mm. Uh, so if you look at all the IRC channels, uh, most of them, I, at least I monitor them. 
Um, so that's another place you can get a hold of me. Uh, so I look at the subner on the laptop, and, and then somebody can look through on an app through uh, Matrix. So you can Matrix. Yeah, I got to get on Matrix. I've heard more about Matrix. So many people in the Monero community talking about it. Uh, it's a, it's a. I find it actually. It took me a while to set it up, but it's actually very useful for me to monitor the IRC channels when the mappings, so that if I got my laptop with which I'm running the raw IRC channels on it, Matrix allows me to sit on a phone or go on a different computer and monitor all this stuff very wow. effectively. Well, that's probably why you have the wealth of knowledge you do, as well as being yeah. part of the game for so long. Yeah. So, love you. Anyways, it's been a pleasure. We love having you on. Yes. And uh, excited for the next round. There's just always so much more to talk about. You just have you the great takes. So thanks so, for coming on. See you next time. It's a pleasure.